You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast for recovering work-life balancers, finding harmony in the imbalance of work, well-being, and the in-between. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, full-time education executive, budding entrepreneur, wife, mother of four, and so much more. How do I balance it all? I don't. Instead, I found harmony in the imbalance of it all. Listen to find out how other women just like you are doing the same. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hey, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Disrupting Balance podcast. You do not want to miss this one. I'm telling you, when the power of imagination breeds manifestation, you have no choice but to sit back and enjoy the ride. And for Kyra Holt, an adoptee raised in Decatur, Georgia, her ride has taken off and taken her to places well beyond her imagination. Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, China, all over the world. But the journey didn't begin without its challenges. As a child, her mother gifted her with a globe that started to create this imagination of places where she wanted to travel. But that was halted when at the age of 15, she became a caregiver to her aging parents for the next 20 years. And through that time, her father passed away. But it was the passing of her mother in 2008 that changed her life, that shifted her perspective. See, at the time, Kyra was in her darkest place. She thought she was buried, but when in actuality, she was being planted. And you all know about that type of journey where you feel dark, but you've been planted. This is that story. You have to listen to find out how bipolar disorder, traveling the world, and friendships create harmony in a life that she never could have imagined. So hello and welcome everybody to the Disrupting Balance podcast. So glad you joined me for another new episode. I'm telling you guys, we have some amazing, amazing women that have agreed to come on and share their story. And today we have in the guest chair, Kyra Holt. Hey, Kyra, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Hanifa? I am good and I feel so, so blessed to have you on the show because for many of, for the listeners, so for you, so you know, Kyra and I go way, way, way back. I mean, we're talking like high school back, right? So I can't wait for us to get into this conversation and just reconnect and talk about everything that's so amazing in her life right now. So Kyra, we're going to jump right in and tell me what is your story? My story begins, truncated version, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I was adopted by James and Elizabeth Holt when I was one year old, and they raised me. And with that, I w- a lot of different things were instilled in me. My mother recognized my particular interests and gifts and did what she could to feed, feed them and fulfill them. One of the things she did was, get, yeah, she got me a globe one time. And I was playing around with it, and I noticed that there was a country, and I might have been eight or nine around this time, I'm not sure, but one of the countries is shaped like a boot, Italy. And I was so fascinated by that. I was just like, God, well, you know, the, the, if this is the world, then the world is bigger than what I know. And I got fascinated and kind of fixated on Italy because it was shaped like a boot. And so for whatever reason, that just got 
into me. And I, when I got older, I was just like, okay, that's the place where I want to live. Know nothing about the country, nothing about the culture, but it was in me, in my head. So, mm-hmm. And so let's talk about that because I know from growing up, you were always, you had like a large imagination and you would write these wonderful, wonderful stories and what would become these novellas and novels. Yeah. And so during class, no less. Huh? I said during class, no less. During class, but still got good grades. Okay. Okay. But, um, so do you think kind of that exposure at a young age to kind of this world you hadn't heard of or known of like the larger world, do you think that lended itself to your ability to imagine and be creative? I think so. Because like I said, I got fixated on Italy and once, you know, I got fixated on, I started reading about it and, you know, just, just trying to learn as much as I can. Even at that young age, I wasn't able to, there's a word, but I was just absorbing knowledge, whatever knowledge I could about the country. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you watch on stuff on TV when they start talking about Italy and Italian people, of course it had my complete interest, but you know, there's, there's what's, there's what you see on TV there's what you read in books, and then there's real life. But for mm-hmm. me, I, it allowed me to dream and to imagine at that young age what uh, what an ideal place would look like. You know, the men are beautiful. It's, it's in the water. You've got the ocean. Well, not the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea and mm-hmm. the, um, all these different countries and regions. And, um, you know, it just it allowed me to imagine and let my imagination just go. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just, it just, it, it, and then it, that sort of lended itself to other things. So it's just like, okay, well, what else is out there that um, I might be interested in? But nothing held my interest as much as Italy does. And I'm yeah. determined to retire there if, if I'm able to. That's my goal. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that because you grew up in the South. Right. We we grew up in a town. <laughs> yes, ma'am. South, and it has its own like stamp in uh, pop culture. Yes, it does. Right? Yes, ma'am. And now the last several years of your life, and I'll let you get into the details, okay. you've lived overseas. So you are a multicultural woman in these environments. Yes, ma'am. So let's talk about how you were able to facilitate that experience. Because when we spoke, you talked about you didn't do this until like you were 40 or in your 40s. Yeah. Talk about that experience. Well, okay. First of all, I'm, I'm a proud Southern girl. I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, Gresham Park, proud, proud Southern belle. Um, you can hear it in my voice. And I never, I never deny it. So with me getting the job overseas, it, it, was, it happened all at once, even though it was something I had been somewhat prepared for I just never thought it would happen until it actually happened and then I had the opportunity to leave so my first posting I left the U.S. at 40 my first posting was in Shanghai China and um I got the job shortly shortly after I defended I successfully defended my dissertation I got that job and I just left I sold everything I had got rid of what I couldn't sell you know and just left on the plane with 17 pieces of luggage and I got there and, you know, at, at that particular time, I was the only black girl in that, you know, that was in my cohort that I, uh, that I trapped, well, that I was recruited with. And of course, I got a lot of attention, mm-hmm. not negative attention, 
but just mm-hmm. because I, you know, it's, when, I, when I say attention, I, I guess let me be specific from the from the locals, the local Chinese, the local Shanghainese people, because I'm clearly not white. I am a, a, a lighter skinned black woman, but I have very, very kinky hair. And so it was so interesting in the, w- the way I would be perceived because they were looking at me like, tra- like qu- trying to figure out exactly what I was. Because mm-hmm. our exposure to them is very limited. It's what they see on TV. Right. So I have had many instances when uh, Chinese people would just stare at me and sometimes they would like just take a picture of me because... It's like, oh my God, this is a real black person, but she doesn't look like you. You, you get where I'm going with this. Yeah, so, yeah. So that was interesting because at first I was just like, should I be concerned that they're taking my picture? I don't know where this is going to go. And um, someone who had been there for a few years was like, it's okay. They don't mean any harm. They just have never seen someone that looks like you before. That's all that is. And wow. so um, I linked up with some other sisters over there, and they helped me get acclimated. But at the same time, you know, none of them were from the South. It was just me. So I I told myself I would be open to new experiences and new opportunities, that I would not just be a a Southern transplant. I wanted to try to learn more about this world that I was in. And I started trying to learn Mandarin and um, traveling to try to get around and navigate my way around the city. And that attitude, even though I only stayed in Shanghai for two years, that mental headspace is something I have carried with me through all my postings. After I left China, I spent two years in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and that was very tough, but I still try to keep as much of an open mind as possible because there's all, you can learn a lot about yourself when you're put in um, stressful situations. And at the time, Mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia was very, 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 very restrictive, had to wear the abaya and everything. Um, it just, you know, I'm not going to try to get arrested. I'm not going to go against my contract. I'm going to do what I, what is expected of me. But at the same time, I learned a lot about myself. It's just like, okay, mm-hmm. so you can handle this level of restriction. You can work, but you can work within this kind of construct. But then two years was enough of that. And then I was on to Indonesia and I spent three years in Indonesia and I had a, a, a very good time. But over there, one of the things I learned in Indonesia, Indonesians are brown Asians, brown skinned Asians. So uh, uh, in terms of skin tone wise, I fit right in. Nobody stared at me because I was the same color as they were. And it was interesting because I was just like, oh, okay, so you guys are brown. All right. Okay, then. Okay. And um, I had a good time over there, had a really good job, got to really bond with the kids and learn about that part of the world. And they're very proud of their heritage. And not only that, they're curious about where their teachers come from. So I would tell them stories about my youth and, you know, growing up in the hood and, you know, back when high school was high school and there was no middle school and things like that. And, you know, you learn every time I've learned more and more about what I am capable of. Because there was a time when I would always say, well, you, I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this. And I, it's, it's, I was limiting myself. It's, it's, you should never do that because right. sometimes you'll be put into a situation to prepare you for something bigger that's coming along. Uh, my yeah. time in China was semi-successful. And what I mean by that is that the job did not work out. But I took the lessons that I learned from Shanghai and applied it to um, my job in Saudi and my job in Indonesia, and now I'm living in West Africa, 
And all the things that I've learned over those past five and six years are really coming to fruition now because I have a job that I love and it's easy. It was not easy when I left the U.S. the first time, but now with some experience behind me and what the expectations for this type of expat life is like, I am, <clears throat> excuse me, more than adequately prepared to do my job. And I was just thinking, I was like, oh, this is a lot easier than the adjustment period has been a lot easier than it has been in other countries. Mm-hmm. And my Southern upbringing is, is, it's, it's always there. I always tell my students, I said, now look, I'm from the South, Southern U.S. I don't know what you know about the dirty South, but this is how we talk. <laughs> and these are saying, these are sayings that we say, sweetie, darling, honey, baby, uh-huh. baby. I said, I don't, mean, I'm, I don't mean anything by it. It's just an uh-huh. endearment. If I forget your name, I'm going to call you sweetie. <laughs> but I don't mean any harm. If you do not want me to call you that, just just tell me. And for the most part, the kids are like, oh, it's cool. It's fine. And, you know, I bring me to the to them. I bring myself to my job. I, you know, I talk to my kids. I get to know them. We establish relationships. And in turn, they enrich me by telling me their stories and how they ended up there. And it's just, you know, these are some really amazing kids. It's one of those situations where I wish... My niece, I don't have any children of my own. I wish that my niece or, you know, Shanza's kids or Angie's kids had the opportunity to attend an international school and have mm-hmm. that kind of camaraderie with students like that. But, you know, yeah. So if I could jump in here. So you, when you started your story, you talked about, you know, letting go of all these things and just packing up with your 17 pieces, pieces of luggage and just taking the leap. Yep. What was happening in your life kind of before that point? Because you shared some things that were happening with your mom. You were also in a doctoral program. You were also teaching in the school system. What transpired in your life before you finally just decided, I'm doing it and packing up and taking those 17 pieces of luggage? (laughs) Okay. um, So to rewind a bit, um, my parents were older. Um, They were both the age I am now when they adopted me. So... um, my parents were much older. And so Mm -hmm. I had starting from age 15, I had to learn how to become a caregiver because that was going to be expected of me. Once I got older, I didn't understand it, but I had been, you know, been taught how to give medicines, how to take blood pressure Mm -hmm. and temperatures and, you know, just things that a caregiver would need to do. And for 20 years I did that. And I did that to the detriment of my own health and, mental well-being and things of that nature. But I want to be clear. These were my parents. If I had it to do all over again, I would do it. I love my parents. Mm -hmm. Because of them, I have the life that I have. So my father died in 98, a couple of years after I graduated from UGA with my bachelor's. And um, I had to take care of him. He had cancer. And then he died in 98. And then in 99, I made a decision to go back to school because I learned quick. I'm an academic. I don't like working on yeah. in the summertime. <laughs> uh-huh. like, this June, July working stuff? Oh, that's not me. Oh, no, ma'am. So I went back to school, got a master's degree in science education and started teaching science um, in 2000, uh, 2001, excuse me. And that's been my career path. And shortly after I started back teaching, I went back to UGA to, uh, to obtain a doctorate. That was one of my goals that I had decided that 
when I learned that I didn't have to go to medical school to become a doctor, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you had just, you just say stuff. You don't know what you're saying, but you're saying stuff. And so that never left me. And I enrolled into the doctoral program in the fall of 2005. I could only go part-time because I was teaching full-time and I had my mom to take care of. So I was yeah. not able to go full-time. And it took me 11 years. It took yeah. 11 years. It just, yeah. it takes what it takes. But there was a time, I want to say starting in 2006, 2007, where I started to be resentful of being a caregiver because I had no life of my own. Um, my mom was mm. sick. She had congestive heart failure. She was suffering from kidney failure. You know, all of those things, high blood pressure, you know, the things that can plague our, our people. Um, but she needed me. And so I was going to do what a good daughter does and take care of my mom. But at the same time, I was suffering internally. And I'll get to what that was in a few minutes. 2007 and 2008 were very bad years for me. Um, she died in February of 2008. And shortly after that, um, I realized, or I was, I, it occurred, I was grieving and I felt lost because my mom and I had been together ourselves for so long. Yeah. So long. It was just me and her that when she, when she finally passed, um, it was this hole, this giant hole in my heart, in my life that I didn't know how to feel. Mm. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't, nothing was progressing. Work was work, but I wasn't making progress with my dissertation writing. I wasn't making progress in terms of grieving. I was stuck. I was in a dark hole. I was in a dark place, but I had the wherewithal to uh, get, uh, um, get, uh, to get a grief, to go to grief counseling. And while I was in grief counseling, um, my therapist she noticed, um, she started noticing how I would behave in my different, in my, in my sessions. Mm-hmm. And they were, she was treating me, I was being treated for depression because I was grieving. But then she realized that that was, that, that it was not just depression. Um, she asked me a bunch of questions and I answered them. And when she, and then she said, Carol, I think you're bipolar. She said, if you're mm-hmm. bipolar, you're on the wrong meds. Mm-hmm. We need to. Let's 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 look at some things. And so then I and this was about eight, eight, eight months into therapy. So okay. um, I got put on the right meds and the right dosage at Hanifa. It was like a veil had been lifted. Wow. It was it was like my eyes were opened. My. But did you, but did you feel like when she told you when she said, I think you're bipolar. I mean, did you feel some kind of way? Did you feel like, what, me? No, Because, you know, in our community, there's a perception around health care, around mental care. Yes. Did you feel some kind of way? I looked at her because I, I know what I had just answered. The question she asked me, I had just answered her. And I was like, are you, are you, are you sure? I said, mm. really? And she said, yeah. She gave me two books to read. Um, one of them was called Touched by Fire, but I can't remember the other one. But I thought about when I was driving home from therapy and I thought about everything that had happened and every major thing that had happened in my life that I could remember. And I was like, Hanifa, she was right. You know how I used to fly off the handle in, in school mm-hmm. and, get, and get put out in the hallway mm-hmm. because I lost my temper and started yelling and screaming and all that nonsense? Mm-hmm. That, you know, 
the way I, my shopping habits, you know, um, just, I mean, the talking fast, the jumbled speech, the jumbled thoughts, all of that was part of the condition. The thing is, it bipolar disorder can be degenerative. So it gets mm-hmm. worse as you get older. So of course, when I was younger, you had no idea about this thing. My mom mm-hmm. had, my mom knew something. My mom knew something because she tried to get me in therapy when I was younger, but she didn't. Have, we didn't have the insurance for it, and she couldn't yeah, afford yeah. it. Yeah. And sometimes she would give me one of her nerve ta- nerve tablets to quiet me down. She told everybody I was hyper, so she knew something wasn't quite right, and mm-hmm. used her her not her limited knowledge base to try to help me feel better. So when I was driving home, thinking about what Doctor Osborne had said, I said, "She's right." This, this makes sense. This makes everything make sense. So when I got on the correct meds and it takes time for the meds to work, few, uh, two months, two, two to three months for the dosages and for them to work properly. Hanifa, like I said, a veil was lifted. A curtain was open. I saw the light. Everything just was so clear. Mm. And I was able to finish my mm. dissertation. Mm. I was able to get my thoughts in such a way that I could complete the requirements for my doctorate. Mm. Um, now, I was still sad because my mom was still gone, but I was able to work. And yeah. so and my mom died in 2008, but it took me another five years before I would graduate. And it, it was it was just me getting to getting myself together, getting my head right, finishing school continuing to work that just consumed me for those for those years and it and it needed to I needed to just get things done because you don't want to with the life I have now you didn't I didn't want to try to have to finish a dissertation and start a new job at the same time even though at the time I did not know I would be working overseas so I got myself together got my head right you know kept going to therapy did my job finished school I defended my dissertation in April of 2013. So after I defended my dissertation, I got an email from the principal of the school in Shanghai. And he asked me, he said, do you want to come live in China? And I was like, yes. And then I had all the interviews and went boom, boom, boom. And I got, they made me a job offer in late June and I accepted it. And I said, okay. You just accepted a job in China. How's this going to work out? Yeah. Because <laughs> you know how it is, Hanifa. We make plans and they fall through and you think you're yes. going to do X and you end up having to do Y or yes. maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe it wasn't, yep. it's, not, it's not for you. Cause, and I, all of those things plagued me because I'm like, I'm scared. I'm scared that this is not going to happen. But I had to pre- prepare as if it was. And so I, I gave my brother all my furniture. You know, I sold my car. I got rid of my house. All I had left was some clothes and, you know, shoes and just something. Everything that I needed to take with me, I packed up in those 17 pieces of luggage and I let everything else go. For all, all the stuff that I had accumulated, stuff that my mom had left me, stuff. That's the key word. It's stuff. Stuff. Exactly. I didn't need it. What exactly. I needed, I carried with me. And I got on that plane uh, July 27th. And didn't look back. 2013, you defend. Shortly thereafter, you get on this plane to head to China. You lost your mother mm-hmm. uh, um, five years prior, but right. you're still dealing with it. But you found such 
clarity and freedom in recognizing what your your health challenges were. Yeah. And now yeah. you head to a foreign country where there's all new uh, stimuli around that can, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, create a trigger or have you feel in some kind of way. How do you how did you manage all that with all that stuff? that you were bringing into this new experience and all the stuff you were going to now, I guess, acquire in the new experience. How did you manage that? Like, did you have a rhythm, a cycle, or did you set up a plan? Okay, this is going to happen each day to make sure I have the right frame of mind. How did you do all that? I Well, a lot of the time, and I still do this now, I just, I come home and I just sit. And I just let whatever thoughts that need to go through my head, I just let them go. I just process, process, process what I need, get rid of what I don't. And honestly, with, you know, moving from the uh, southern southern United States to China, Shanghai, China, a city with 23 million people. Mm-hmm. It was a complete culture shock. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared for some of the things that I saw. And that's not a, that's not, and that's not to say it was bad. It's just that it's a completely different it's a completely different world, but not too different because um, there was some times and I was like, oh, this is just like back at home. I was walking mm-hmm. down the street one day going to the bank and some dudes was out detailing cars. There were some nail salons on the street. Somebody was <laughs> clothes. Somebody was blasting some music. It was Chinese music, but somebody was blasting. And I was like, this is like Gresham Roll. What's up? <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm at home. <laughs> so, but but it, it was... um. It was, it was, I was like, okay, okay. They live their lives just like we live ours. So it did take me, I will say, maybe about six months before I was acclimated to living in a different environment. And part of that was me getting up and going out to explore this environment. And in Shanghai, it's very easy because they have a top-notch transportation system. We get on, we get on taxi go to the train station, get on the train, you go all over the city. And um, I made some really good friends that I'm still cool with now. And we would explore and go to these different restaurants and go to these different events and, and things like that. The sisters that I had clicked up with, we would all go to dinner and at these different places and just, ha- it was just, I was living for the first time in a long time, 15 mm. years or more, I was actually living living, breathing, actually enjoying life. And I was just like, you know what? Everything um, from that dark place that I was in, I felt like everything after that was a gift. And so I try to remind myself of how low I had sunk Mm -hmm. and where I am now, which is a complete whole nother situation. So I was like, that was a gift. Let me just take in everything and have fun with everything that I am experiencing. And after that, I really started to travel more. Once I got adjusted to life in Shanghai and the food and, you know, then I didn't have any bad experiences with the locals, with the local Chinese. But I know that's not the same for every black person that goes over there. Mm-hmm. I was cool. I didn't have any problems. They were very friendly, very accommodating. And I enjoyed that. Like I said, my reasons for leaving Shanghai were the job was the job, not not anything else. So it was Every country, I have to sit down and process, okay, it's like, well, it's like a board game. You got to learn a new set of rules for every country you go to. And mm. so I had to, you know, when I moved to Shanghai, uh, when I moved to Saudi, it was like, okay, Carrie, you know, you got to wear the bio. 
I put a plan in place because I know of the things that I have to do because I've done my homework. And then I just try to execute that plan. But the thing is, is keeping the plan simple. Right. If it's complicated, it's not going to get done. Right. My, my plan for every country I move to is, okay, can you get to work? How are you going to get transportation to and from work and from work, from work to home? How are you going to get to the grocery store? How are you going to get access to your meds? Those three things are the three things that I have to make sure that I have a handle on when I arrive or, or shortly after I arrive. If mm-hmm. I get those three, three tasks accomplished, everything else is second nature because I got to be able to go to work. That's how I get paid. I got to be able to buy groceries because that's how I eat. And I have to be able to get to my meds because I need my meds to function. To function properly, I should say. And that's, it's it's a scary thought because the med situation is a serious one. I always ask about the insurance benefits for for the schools that I apply to. And if the insurance benefits are not extensive enough, then I, I can't accept the job, Hanifa. It's, I can't, basically, I don't feel like I can get my hands on my meds. And if I can't get my meds, I can't do my work. Yep, yep. So the school where I am now has an excellent insurance benefit system. So it was not uh, it was not a problem for me to come here and find a doctor who can dispense my meds as I need. Yeah, I, simplicity I think is kind of the takeaway in all of this because we tend to kind of try to create all this complexity around what we expect, what we're supposed to do, and with that in mind, let's talk about some of those expectations. Because being in the South, the South, as you know, and I know, it's a very traditional environment. I mean, of course, there are shifts now in modern day, but growing up, you know, the expectation is as a woman, you're supposed to get, well, go to college, Mm -hmm. get married, have a family, all those things, right? Right. So how... Did you, how were you able to unravel from that and release that? Because you mentioned that once you figured out the system in China and got comfortable after six months, you, six months, you felt like you were finally living. But for you, that didn't mean I had a husband and some kids. So how are you able to unravel from that expectation that is put on women? I think part of it, because I I was raised same. you were supposed to go to college, you're expected to get married. You expected to pop out some kids. But I think part of it is me having older parents. I mm-hmm. had to put dating on, on a delay. I, I, didn't, I tried to date and take care of my parents at the same time. Anifa, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. My parents came first. Mm-hmm. It really put a damper on my dating life because I would be like, okay, well, what's, uh, hope, is daddy eating right now? Did, you know, did I make sure this was okay? You know, is mom all right? And I, I couldn't focus on the guy I was dating or, or trying to date at the time because I was so concerned about not being home to make sure things were taken care of. Yeah. And I tried because I, I wanted to be quote unquote normal. And I know that my mom and my mom especially would have wanted me to, get married at some point, but I just, it was just too much. It was just too much. It wasn't fair to the guys that mm-hmm. I was trying to date and it wasn't fair to me. And I just felt like, you know what? I can't, I can't do this. Let me just take care of what I can take care of, which is my home and my job. So 
I got I just left that part of life alone and just focused on taking care of my mom and going to school and working and, and, and mm-hmm. everything. And she would tell me we would have talks and she would say, I want you to get married. I don't want to be a burden to you. I, I want you to get married. I want you to have a family. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Mama, I'm all right. I don't want all that right now. In mm-hmm. time later, you know, mm-hmm. because what was in my heart, deep in my heart, and I didn't acknowledge this until later, was honestly, Hanifa, I didn't want to get married. And I didn't want to have kids because what what was in me that I could not verbalize was I don't want to take care of anyone else. Yes. Yes. This is is killing me. My parents. So I will see it through. But this is having to always be responsible for someone else Mm. was just Mm. wearing on me so deeply. I was so tired. But I would like, I would say, no, mom, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It, it, it. If it's meant to happen, it'll happen. Blah 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 blah. Um, but um, I do, I do remember, you know, I, I, I never, I, I stopped dating. I remember one time, one guy I did try to date. He was a preacher, and my mom loved the mm. idea of that. My mom loved the idea that my baby got a preacher. I did, I did, I did. Yeah. Child, yeah. my mom loved that, but it didn't work out for a number of reasons. But one of the things he said to me, which really was like, oh, yeah, you definitely went the one. Um, I had asked him, uh, we were supposed to go out and he was going to pick me up from my house. And I asked him, I said, do you mind getting my mom a meal from a, a local restaurant so she can have dinner so I, so I don't have to worry about cooking? And he said to me, he said, I'm dating you, not your mom. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Girl, no. Guess what? You're not dating me no more. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, that's not how you do it. No, it's not. That's a, no, I'm trying to adjust the schedule so that you and I can go out. But my yes. mom has to have her has to have dinner first. Yes. And if you can't understand the sacrifices that I have to make and help me with this little bit of thing, you were never meant for me. Go with God. Buy your con deals. Good luck in all your endeavors. <laughs> And really after that, because that was, oof, I want to say that might have been 2005. After that, I was done. I was done dating. I was done. I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I can't pick. I can't choose. I'm already mm-hmm. tired. And now I got this, these dudes trying to press me because it, it's just, it was too much. It was too much. So I just focused on um, what I needed to focus on. With the schools that I choose to, to work with, the schools that I work with, I always make sure I get a school that pays my rent. Provides housing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I always make sure I get a school that can, that housing is provided, and um, they pay you they pay your utilities. Because if you take care of that, then you got money to travel. Exactly. You know, because then I don't have to worry about a mortgage or a rent or whatever. The school takes care of that, and that month that's money I can save. And so I started going on these short trips to Hong Kong, to Thailand. Um, uh, oh God, I, I can't even think of all the places I went to while I was in Shanghai. But that once that, that travel bug got me, Hanifa, that was it. Mm-hmm. That was a wrap. Mm-hmm. When I, Cause it's like in the USA, we're, in, we're over in North America. So we got what, Mexico, C- Canada, Latin America, and then South America. But it's so hard to travel outside the US yeah. because it's so yeah. expensive. In Asia, it's cheap to travel around Asia. <clears throat> and then we could take these little weekend excursions cause the flight is what, 90 minutes, two hours? So I just started traveling and that's when I started living because I was finally seeing the world that mm. I had imagined on the globe. Mm. On the globe back when I was mm. a, back when I was a kid. The first time mm. I went to Italy, 
was in 2015. My friend that I had met in China, she had texted me. She said, girl, let's meet up in, let's meet up somewhere. For whatever reason I had was fixated on um, uh, Istanbul. I don't know why. I don't know why it was, it was Istanbul, but she was mm-hmm. like, no, she said, let's do Italy. And I was like, oh my God, I can do that now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's go to Italy. And so we met up in Rome. Wow. We went to Rome and Milan. Panifa, wow. when I stepped off that plane mm. in Rome, Italy. What was that feeling like? I mean, this is like life full circle. What was that feeling? I had, my heart was so light. I had this giant smile on my face. Mm. You know, I had got me a, got a nice hotel and it was in, um, it was in walking distance to one of the um, squares. You know, it's, Italy is very much a walking city. Well, Rome is a walking city. I'm sorry. And so when I, I put my luggage out, I just started exploring and yeah. just walking around. And then my friend, she got there later on that day and we met up and we just walked around the whole city. We were there for three days. We walked around the whole city, just randomly got lost and started yeah. eating one at wonderful restaurants and, and things like that. Oh, my God. We had so much fun. And then we hopped on the train and went north and spent three days in Milan. And wow. I was like, this is, this is what I am where I have always wanted to be. Yes. And I was like, wow. and I, I remember cause I was blogging that night and I cried as I was blogging because I was like, what I was telling you, this was my, this was my, my spot. This was my country. This was yeah. what I had pointed out and say, I want to go here. And I was, yes. and I was there. Yes. I was <laughs> there and I cried because I was like y'all don't un- I was you know when I was blogging I was like y'all don't even understand this is a dream come true yeah and so and it, know, yeah go ahead and I was just gonna say and I went back to Italy twice more to after that <laughs> <laughs> so many cities to visit so so little time yeah I when I just hear your story I, I there's that saying when it says you know when you're in your darkest place or when you're in that darkness you might think you're being buried, but really you've been planted. Planted, Yes, ma'am. And so when I hear you talk about, like when you said you went to Italy and you got off the, the whatever the travel mode was, I was feeling it with you. Like, oh my gosh, you just like, <laughs> your roots were just coming out. I mean, yes. Yes. I just felt it with you, you yes. know? And that journey from that globe to where you are now is just such, such, such an amazing story. But a key piece that I know is a part of your story and your identity and that I've always marveled at is friendship. Because I know from high school that you have a core unit that has been by your side. They're, they're, They're your family. Um, and I, I watch you all on, on social media or when we've had a chance to talk, we've talked about it. And it just does my heart so good to see the, the, how that friendship has lasted. So talk a little bit about why friendship matters to you and how that's carried you through this whole life journey. Well, you know, we all met back in eighth grade, back at Clarkston High, 87. Mm-hmm. But it was at Clarkston that I met. You and Shanza and Angie, who, you know, are permanent members of the squad. And (laughs) we came up 
high school and I thought I, it was like when we graduated in 92, I mean, we were thick as thieves mm-hmm. the whole time. It was just, everybody's like, okay, it's all y'all three. You know, mm-hmm. what, if, if we see one, what are the other two? The other two can't be mm-hmm. far behind because that's just how we were. That's just how it was. Yeah. I thought that when we well, went off to college, because Angie went to school in North Carolina, Shanza was supposed to go to Fort Valley State and I was going to UGA. And you know how sometimes you get to that point and then when you get to college and you go to different colleges, you lose touch. But for whatever reason, I, I think I convinced Shanza. I'm not sure, but Shanza changed her mind about going to Fort Valley and she came to UGA. Uh, uh, that I, I started fall. She came that winter. You remember? Yeah, I forgot she came. I just thought she had been there the whole time with us. No, she came. She came in January. She started in January. A semester behind. A semester behind us. Okay. And that was pivotal. That was pivotal because Shanza was the only one who could calm me down when I would go on one of my crazy rants. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) When I go on my mood swings. Uh huh. She knew how she could calm me down. And um. We came up through college. Angie was still in North Carolina, but she would come visit us. She would come mm-hmm. visit. Weren't you, weren't you in that group? It was a bunch of us went to that Q party. Girl, I don't know. You know, we did so many parties. And I have no idea. I probably was. <laughs> Are we gonna, yeah, so it was a whole group. I just remember it was a whole group of us. And we all, yeah. we all dressed up in like throwback clothes and, and went to this uh-huh. Q party. Or whatever, and I feel like all of us was there. But anyway, I, I remember. Think I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I remember, and I remember Angie came down to go to that party with us, and we were all decked out in our seventies best. Oh, it was just, it was just, it was just fun. But um, we kept our friendship together, and even after we <clears throat> graduated from college and all came back home or whatever to start living our lives, our adult lives, um. That's what happened. But we still kept in touch. And over those years, over those years, you know, mm-hmm. they fell in love, got married. Sean's, you know, fell in love, got married. They, you know, ha- you know, had started having kids and stuff. And I remember um, in Angie's wedding, to be specific, um, at this point, I think Sean was already married. And I think she had already had Avery. Um, but I was watching Angie get married and she had come down the aisle and, you know, she's standing up front with Amari and I was just looking at the smile on her face. Mm. And I just remember looking at her smiling and thinking to myself, why is it that I don't know what it means to be that happy? Mm. Mm. I don't know what that feels like. And Mm. I don't like that. I don't know what it feels like. And it just kind of, that just kind of just stuck in with me. But our friendship has gone through ups and downs. There were times where we would just, you know, we would have disagreements or whatever the case and wouldn't speak for a while. But then time would pass, pick up the phone. Hey, girl, what you doing? And that's it. And ever since I've been, ever since I've been abroad, of course, when I come home, I stay with Shanza. And, mm-hmm. we, you know, we're still the three of us. We're still a trio. We're still, yeah. we're still close. I don't know where I would be without those ladies yeah. in yeah. my life, my sisters. You know, I'm mm-hmm. practically um, Miss Maddie's seventh daughter, a seventh child. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I know Chance and I, you know, we call each other sis because that's what we are. Because they yeah. they look out for me. I look out for them. We yep. take care of each other. I don't know. I really do not know where I would be without them in my life or, or having stuck with me as long as they have. Because I'm not an easy person to be friends with. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not an easy person to love. And I know that. I value loyalty. Mm-hmm. And they've been loyal. Mm-hmm. And we've weathered so many storms that we've gotten to this point now in our relationship where it is what it is. And it's going to be what yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. And, you know, and it's and it, and I don't have to pretend and they don't have to pretend we are who we are. Yeah. When I see you all it just takes <laughs> me back to those days. I just it's 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 good memories mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and it's just such a blessing blessing to be at this point and to be able to be retrospective, you know. Oh, very much um, so. Yeah, so I'm really, really happy, you know, for you and kind of your life and the journey and everything you've been able to experience. So tell the listeners where people can connect with you or even learn more about how to teach overseas or live overseas. Uh, People who are interested in wanting to live and work overseas um, and need need a, a, a starting point are welcome to email me. Um, kyra.holt at gmail.com. I'm fine with that. My name is Kyra Brianna Holt, and I am disrupting bounds by eschewing a conventional life and forging my own path in this world. I am a world traveler. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website, www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.